What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a refreshing and captivating interview with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal some entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories, some you've never heard before. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget the free TuneIn app. We're there, too. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog on a Chicago landmark business since 1893. There is nothing like a Vienna hot dog or one of their Polish sausages, and their products are available coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and through Amazon. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is also sponsored by the Polina Market, Chicago's top purveyor of fine meats, poultry, fish, fresh frozen prepared foods, wine, beer, and now serving fresh sandwiches. They've been a staple in the city since 1949. This week, we welcome Brooklyn Nets analyst Sarah Kustak. The one thing I held on to and the thing that I continue to hold on to when I think about it on a daily basis is a dear friend told me, you will always be your mother's greatest legacy. And I think about the absolute angel that she is, she was, um, and that everything I am is because of her. Sarah Kustak, she of great three-point accuracy, has hit some big shots during her career, including an immensely popular period here, and then with the Yes Network, where she became a trailblazer. Gifted with great presence and the ability to command an audience, Sarah has become a prominent figure in the world of sports, but can she still hit the shot from long range? So, Sarah Kustak, tell me a story I don't know. George, that is quite an intro, and this is a story I wasn't planning to start with and tell. I've got twofold for you since you're talking about my shooting prowess of the United Center. And before I get to the real story I wanted to begin with, when I was in high school, uh, I played basketball at Sandberg High School in Orland Park, but I participated in a three-point shooting contest at the United Center. And it was, of course, one of the, the great joys um, and things that I was looking forward to, remembered. I'll never forget my high school coaches, um, athletic directors. It, it was something that we practiced for after practice and, and after school, set up the gym. And you know it's different shoot, shooting in a game, shooting off racks is, is two entirely different things. Um, so like, we gotta make sure you're, you're accustomed to shooting off the rack. We were diligent about it. We talked about it. We were pumping out. It was a couple of weeks in the making of me getting to, to live out at this time, this dream of being in, in the home of the Chicago Bulls, um, the United Center, and at halftime of a Bulls game, go out and participate in this three-point shooting contest. And I'm going to, to cut to the uh, end of the story, which is not very exciting. But Georgia, I was terrible. I was off. I can't even. I can't even remember how many shots I'll make. But 
all I think about. And sometimes when I would walk into the United Center, that was the first memory that popped out. I was like, I was so hyped for this moment. I was so ready. I had my entire high school and those that I cared about uh, there is, you know, getting set. I shouldn't say there, but they're cheering me out and watching. So how's your three-point shooting today? Oh, maybe it would look like that. I still think it's good. I still think it's good. I still get to run in. I still get to play. Uh, but it's looking good. That's one thing I always say. You never really lose. You lose your handles a little bit, your quickness, your ability to jump, though I never had that. But you don't lose your shot. But the story I want to talk about initially, because it's always one of when people ask me about some of my great moments um, throughout the course of my career that I remember that really stand out. But the Blackhawks and their Stanley Cup run, in 2010, and this goes back to, to me being born and raised in Chicago and covering the Blackhawks during that year was one of my great, just great joys thus far of my professional career because of that team, because of um, just so much of the pride they brought to the city. But prior to game one of the Stanley Cup, they put the Jonathan Tave sweater on the statue of Michael Jordan outside the United Center. And there was a variety of opinions that swept through uh, Chicago fans and Bulls fans and Michael Jordan fans of putting a, a hockey sweater and putting something on that statue of, of those who revered Michael Jordan for who he is. Uh, and Michael Jordan, the previous postseason, uh, showed up at a Blackhawks game and he was wearing a, a, I think it was a black 23, you know, his own personalized Blackhawks sweater. And so with all the conversation and that just being a topic amongst other things, as the Blackhawks got set to, to begin Stanley Cup finals and, and host the Philadelphia Flyers, I will never forget. And this is where I believe it was game five. It would have been game five because it's at the United Center. Um, lo and behold, Michael Jordan introduced on the scoreboard. He's in a suite, mm -hmm. uh, steps out, and what is he wearing? A Jonathan Taves sweater. Smart um, guy, wasn't he? You know what? And and for a kid, and, and many, you know, many may look at it in different ways, but for me, a Chicago kid um, who just, Michael Jordan was everything to me, especially when they grew up playing basketball, um, and just the, the culmination of that moment, the feel of that building, uh, we know how so often the United Center felt like it would erupt at times, uh, particularly during the national anthem. But that moment to me was something that was so special. I'll never forget the feeling. I'll never forget the chills. I'll never forget um, just thinking about what it means uh, to, to be a part of the fabric of Chicago sports. You know, sticking with the Blackhawks of that season, you and I both share uh, the experience of going to Philadelphia for game six. And for me, when I was working then with WGN, so it's now overtime and they've got us right in the hallway where you would go through the locker room and on the ice and we're waiting for somebody to, you know, score the, whether it's a winning goal for the Blackhawks or the Flyers force a game seven. And of course, Kane scores the mysterious goal. Chicago Blackhawks. 
And all I remember is within 30 seconds, I'm sitting on a bench and I'm watching a team celebrate, a team that I'm, you know, covered for many, many years and was a fan of growing up, eventually carrying a Stanley Cup around the ice. It was surreal. What was it like for you? Uh, surreal, I think, is the moment. Everyone... I believe has a story for how they saw it, where they were, when they realized it, to your point about that mysterious goal of just, did it actually go in? And I'll never forget, you know, there's so much anticipation in just wondering in, in on the edge of your seat waiting. And at that time, I believe uh, myself, my producer, John Shipman, who was there with us, um, we had, you know, a variety of photos, but we we're all in different places. And we at the time, because we were going to be, if in the event Blackhawks did win, going going out on the ice and then um, following up and going in the dressing room, it is mass chaos. Uh, so we scramble to get in line, scramble, know we're going to go. I, I believe somewhere in that moment, because there was that long line, as you mentioned, in the hallway waiting to get in, um, I go and do a live shot in some corner just to describe the atmosphere as we wait those few moments to get on the ice. And then George, you said it, just the, the absolute blissful joy as we went on today. I see these players, those that we cover in the ups and downs and those within the organization uh, to reach that point and to achieve that goal and something that you know, you weren't sure, certain how it was going to happen and when it would happen. And it was just such a beautiful thing. And I'll never forget the people being bounced around on the ice and trying to grab interviews and who are you going to get here and there. And it was just such a beautiful moment. And we ended up eventually, you know, before we left and, and when the team eventually left, we got a chance to, you know, sit there, our, our Comcast Sportsman at the time, now NBC Sports Chicago crew, take a picture with the cup, but we just sat, we sat there in the visitor's locker room and it, it just reeked of, of cigar smoke and we saw the champagne bottles and beer bottles everywhere, some pucks laying around. Uh, but it was a moment, as we all know, when you're sitting there like, wow, this is, this is something that you may never experience again and you're going to remember forever. And, and not only that, but two days later, of course, is the parade and you were very fortunate to be on one of the buses. That, that was, I keep now, now George, you're taking me back. We have moments and favorite moments. And now I'm starting to think about, you know, the parade is one of my all time favorite moments. Cause I'll never forget. We were, we were waiting those of us that were getting on the buses. And I wish I remember this correct. I think there was 10 buses. Uh, and I, I felt so excited and fortunate to be able to, to be on one of the buses that um, on it, amongst some other people, John McDonough, uh, the Stanley Cup, Jonathan Taves, and Patrick Kane. And now I'm trying to remember the route, and, and I should know this better. I can't remember if we were coming up Madison or the route we took to eventually turn the corner. As you mentioned, you know, there was that final meeting point by uh, Michigan Avenue Bridge where they had the stage set up and everything. Uh, but we turned, it was the first quarter we turned when we started getting into the heart of the loop in the city. And I will never forget, we were all sitting and I was in the back towards, you know, uh, towards the back of the bus and, and Taves and Kane were there and some others. And you turn your head and you just see the sea, see the sea, the sea of people lined amongst the streets.
it was a special moment. It was the one you still look back at clips and to your points. Some were uh, had a, a few a few more cocktails than others. Some potentially had not slept in days. <laughs> Uh, that was all a part of it, though, and it, it was such a beautiful moment to really cap off um, what the last few days were like as the city celebrated, I believe, nonstop. You have gone from a whirlwind career here, which included being inducted to the Chicagoland Sports Hall of Fame in 2012, to a role at the Yes Network, where you started as a sideline reporter for the Nets, and then elevated to the first female solo analyst for an NBA team. So tell me a story I don't know. What was that like? Ian Eagle, Sarah Kustak on YesNetwork.com. The Nets go wire to wire here in Orlando, get the victory over the Magic, snap a three-game losing streak. What stood out for you in this performance? The balance and the way in which this Nets team had so much chemistry on the offensive side of the floor. Seven players had 13 or more points, yep. but it was about finding the open man. You saw. It. Oh, how, how much time do we have, Joe? How, how many stories can I, can I tell in regards <laughs> to that? Well, I think, you know what, I think about, you know, you say that and being inducted into the Chicago Land Sports Hall of Fame. Um, that meant that meant so much to me on so many levels, but it was when I had just moved to New York. So I, I flew back, um, of course, for the induction ceremony, and I want to say it was right around it, but I, I was just starting to work, but it was early on uh, while I was here, and it, I didn't exactly know, you know, I was had a lot of things going on. I was trying to move to New York, trying to still find an apartment. Um, and, and part of the induction class, I mean, those that spoke before me um, and that were with the class were Bo Jackson and Richard Dent. And if looking at those individuals and obviously what they accomplished in their life and their career and professionally to be able to stand on that stage with them, hear from them. And then I looked out at, at my teammates who were there, who I played with DePaul, other friends and family, my coaches, all all sorts of individuals that had meant so much. Uh, it, it, was, it was really meaningful and very emotional for me when you think about the, the people that you're so grateful for. Um, and I even think about that with the Chicago media um, in particular too, knowing that you would never get to a point without all of those people who helped make you who you are. And I often think about that when it came to being in this analyst role and calling the game and how grateful I am for the people who helped get me here. Um, but I, I will say, you know, at this point now, I feel like it's, it's still a challenge every game and you still want to be at your best, but at least I am a little more comforted in my role. The first game that I ever called and sat in the analyst chair, um, it was actually just due to a scheduling quirk. And it was in March and it was with March Madness and some of our current analysts had other obligations um, to call some college basketball, some NCAA tournament games. And so my producer and my bosses, they're well aware how I prepared my basketball acumen and whatnot, my familiarity with the team. Um, and so they, they brought it up to me. It was maybe a week in advance, a week and a half or so. They said, what do, you, what do you think about calling this game? What do you think about being a color analyst? And now I think which I'm so proud about, I'm so excited about. I think it's, it's more of a um, regularity that oftentimes we see females in that role or filling in and you know, in different circumstances. Uh, but I, I think back now and it makes me chuckle uh, because I was like, absolutely, I would love to, it sounds fantastic, I'm so excited. 
in my head, I, I was like, oh my goodness, this is one of those things, that, you know, you, you got to fake it till you make it and, and feel like, yeah, this is a, a situation that will be no big deal and no problem. And uh, well, you're nervous and anxious on the inside, but I had the great, um, great fortune of, of calling the game with Ian Eagle. Uh, who now still is my play-by-play -play partner and, and one of the best in the business. And uh, I'll never forget, we sat there and it was in, it was my first game was in Philadelphia. I know you guys have been talking about it, but it is situations of this, the, the decision-making on the shot selection and the net shot really well from the three-point line overall throughout the course of the game, but it was picking and choosing their spots and the free throw line, even though you look at it and the Nets made 15 free throws, I believe Philadelphia just makes 16, but it's that momentum when you make a nice play, when you get to the basket, when you drive drive and then you're fouled and you don't convert. Uh, it was a Philadelphia 76ers game and there was something about it. This all ties in, goes back to, you know, whether it was the Blackhawks or winning there, the, you know, just moments you experience. And I'll never forget, I, I was feeling anxious, a little nervous. I had just done an interview with NBA TV about doing the game and uh, being the first, you know, female to be calling a game for the Nets. And all sorts of things. Uh, and I went into, it was right next to the press room as I talked about where we watched the Patrick Kane goal. Uh, it's the same bathroom, went in and touched up my makeup, but into the bathroom that I was like, man, I was, I was in this bathroom touching up my makeup, <laughs> you know, five years ago as I was getting ready to do a live shot for the Blackhawks going on the ice, winning the Stanley Cup. And it was really a full circle moment for me of life being wild and just you never know what to expect and oftentimes we have things mapped out of okay what do you want to do in three years where do you want to be in five years and it's like you never know and not in my wildest dreams would i have told you that i thought um that's the seat i would be sitting in the job i would have been doing the place i'd be working for uh in any capacity and i think there there are small little moments and reminders like that that now i think about uh, that are very cool and very special. It's, it's interesting to note, Sarah, women are playing an even more prominent role in men's basketball. Doris Burke is great at what she does. Women are trainers sitting on a bench uh, as assistant coaches. So when do you think we're going to get the first female head coach? And please do not let her be like Tom Thibodeau. Careful! I'm in New York now. The Knicks are the Knicks are. That's true. The Knicks are very excited about Tom Thibodeau and Coach Thibodeau is. Oh, he's always been good to me and has helped helped uh, raise my level of, of basketball intelligence. So I appreciate it. I, I think about George. I think it will happen soon. Um, you know, I don't know when and I don't know who it will be, but I think the fact this season and my numbers may be off. I believe there was ten female assistant coaches last year. I think it's somewhere around that same number this year. We've seen in the front offices, you mentioned the training staff, uh, you know, you go down the list. And I think it's just the continued, you know, there's so much, so much more to go, so much ground to cover. But I think the more that some of these, um, some of the unique areas or the areas in which it's, um, you know, you don't often see it, I think it's becoming more of a regularity. And, and I love that. And I think that's great. And I think the thing I will say, and I've noticed this just, myself personally in my interactions, um, and you see it across the board, the player, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, will that, will that work? How will that happen? We'll play. The players want and respect anyone who they feel like is going to help better their game. 
help them improve, help the team win. All the things that they care about, uh, if you've proved yourself to be just that, they're all in on it and they don't really think um, in the same manner that I think sometimes the viewers or fans or people that aren't in the space and understanding the individuals. So I, I think it'll, I think it'll happen. And I think then all of a sudden, you know, it won't be as turning heads. I remember when I, I came to the Brooklyn Nets and there was, there wasn't any females, you know, within the course of the, the training staff and the performance team. Um, and now it's, you don't even think twice about the, the amount of number, you know, we've got, a, a whole, you know, three, four, five females in, in certain areas or certain groups. And, and again, the list goes on and the, and the women doing it, um, you know, ha, have been so competent and um, have been successful because of the way in which they prepare in certain positions. So I do think we're going to see it. And I, I don't, I think that the novelty will wear away and it will become a regularity and I'm excited for that time. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt, and oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballpark, socks and cubs, stadiums, museums, and the zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and Amazon. And remember, Vienna's not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm acres chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the free TuneIn app, and wherever you get your podcasts. So here's the thing. Most sports fans here will remember you for your time as a TV anchor and reporter, but you were a pretty darn good basketball player at DePaul, and your brother was absolutely no slouch as a quarterback at Northwestern. So tell me a story I don't know why we're not talking about Sarah Kustak, Hall of Fame basketball player. Thanks for saying that, George. I was hoping you weren't going to say that the the people in Chicago still just remembered me as the the TV interviewing during Shoot the Puck that got proposed to, because oftentimes. Oh wait, I, hold it, hold it, hold it. I don't remember that. <laughs> what, what, what? See, look, see what you did now. Oh, uh, <laughs> you don't. Maybe you didn't see it. Maybe again. I I feel like the the early parts of my career, I had the luxury of social media not being as prevalent. So some of the things that get circulated and go viral didn't. Uh, it was shoot the puck, and in for those who aren't familiar with shoot the puck, and I think they still do shoot the puck, but now that they I'm do, and uh, during the second intermission. 
uh, celebrities, fans, people. There was always, I believe, three or four individuals that would come out and try and shoot the puck and they would win prizes if they made it. And so as the rinkside reporter um, for the Blackhawks and for Comcast Sportsnet, now NBC Sports, uh, I would interview these individuals while they were shooting the puck. And it's, uh, it was always, you know, an in, in experiment in, um, you know, just people being familiar and comfortable with being on television. Then, of course, a lot of it had to do with just the celebrities and wanting to get a chance to talk to them. But we'd pick and choose and ask some questions as everyone's going along. And at the end of one of the interviews, and this is a fan or an individual from, from in the stands that they had selected, um, he had, I don't remember the exact words, George, I'm trying to, to block it out, but he <laughs> expressed, which I do appreciate, I guess, uh, but he expressed his love. I love it. Congrats. Thanks for being here. I love you, Sarah. You're so pretty and beautiful. I love you. Oh, I'm going to say thank you. It's got me red and now I don't know what to say. It was awkward. It was a bit awkward. I don't think I said much. I think I said thanks and tossed it to break. But don't think too much of it. You know, it's an awkward exchange, but you keep on moving. We have a game to play. I don't know how they heard or saw or if it was part of the film or what, but by the time I got into the dressing room to do the post-game interviews, all the guys in the locker room had seen it, had heard about it. I'm not sure. So I got a healthy ribbing of being told that I was loved and who am I going to marry and will you marry the guy and um and God rest his soul Steve Monador also I had to do a one-on-one -on -one with how'd it go for shooting the puck tonight oh. <laughs> it was my best shoot the puck of the year well clearly um we had uh, an eventful dressing room and um we've all been receiving emails and texts now that you're off the market it appears uh, we just want confirmation uh, when the first day will be. Well, we're actually just jumping right and getting married. Oh, you're not even, it's just like a blind, instead of a blind date, it's a blind yes, marriage, basically? blind marriage. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> and we started the interview, and he he basically replicated what this person said, and um, <laughs> got a lot of attention, a lot of laughs, uh, but but I do find now, every now and again, if, if people are doing a Google search, somehow that comes up. But you were a pretty good basketball player at DePaul. Thank you. This is what, yeah, I, I you know, I don't like to talk about my, my uh, how good, I had great teammates, we had great fun, and of course, Doug Bruno, who is still the, the head coach at DePaul Women's Basketball and has been really such a, an important piece for women's basketball, but especially in Chicago, um, he's coached with Team USA. But we were, especially the last two seasons, top 25 NCAA tournament, always played some of the, some of the best competition. Um, we almost beat, there was a, I'll never forget a game of, there's, there's two games that often stick in my mind. One was when we were playing Tennessee. Uh, and they were stacked and it was my junior year and we were playing at DePaul and we were up by four with a few minutes to go and ended up going into overtime, ended up, ended up losing. But, um, but we had some teams with a lot of competitive fire. And another time we played at Notre Dame on uh, New Year's Eve, the game did not go well, to say the least. And when we got back to campus at DePaul, Coach Bruno essentially grounded us, had our assistant coaches in the dorms, making sure uh, that we didn't go out. 
and then we had doubles the next morning starting at 5 a.m. So we had a 5 a.m. To, to 7, I think were, were the rules of the NCAA four-hour limit, and then a, we had about an hour or two break, and then we were back at it again. But um, it was just extraordinary times because I think, you know, sports and, and being an athlete and playing at DePaul and the connections you make there, the friendships, the teammates you have, have been so integral in just who I've become as a person and professionally looking back on and how much it's influenced uh, where I am today. So it, it, it was um, it was memories I look back fondly about. And now I, I still, for Fox, uh, Fox Sports, they still let me uh, call some, some Big East games. I've been able to call the Big East Women's Tournament, which has been held at DePaul the last few years. So I still, I still get a little bit of a, a chance to go back and, and see the old stomping grounds. So when did you know being in front of a camera would be your chosen profession and not bouncing a basketball? I now I'm, I'm too I'm my knees and my body wouldn't let me still play at this point George but I would say I probably still am not certain that's such an excellent question because so much of what I did was predicated on basketball and on playing basketball and I think often when I was in school and at DePaul or even high school you're always concerned I always was competitive in the classroom of getting good grades and making sure uh, you put your education first but often I was thinking about basketball and working, you know, my coaches camps and us playing all summer and just the type of dedication that you had to your craft. You didn't always think about what would happen next. And I dabbled with a few different things. I was assistant coach at DePaul um, for a short stretch of time, but never had aspirations, you know, at any point to be on television. That wasn't necessarily a part of what I was thinking about. I always loved to research and to write and the speaking aspect of it. Uh, but I finally, where I really thought, okay, this could be a profession for me was when I had met with some individuals at ESPN, um, thanks to our athletic director, Gene Lenti Ponsetto. And I was in grad school at the time, uh, getting my master's in corporate multicultural communication at DePaul. And they had suggested the fact, hey, maybe, maybe you might want to see how television broadcast works and you can be a runner for us on our Big Ten. You, you mentioned my brother, uh, him being a quarterback in Northwestern and the joy I got out of watching him and being able to be close to him through my college years to go see him play all the time. And so you can come be a runner on our Big Ten football games and you know, just see how productions are put together. And the moment I sat in a truck, and I believe the first game I did with that was a Michigan at Wisconsin game um, at Camp Randall, running around. You spent all of Friday and the set day, all of Saturday. Uh, the magic that went into a live production and the idea of what I loved about playing basketball was being challenged and the adrenaline rush you get of a performance. You know, and you, you be successful, um, you can you can lose, and it was somewhat similar in that sense, and um, really working to to try and fill areas of of your weakness, and I think you find a lot of that with television, and most importantly, just being around sports. And I grew up basketball is what I played in college, but I grew up playing sports, whether we were playing baseball, I played volleyball in high school, uh, run around playing football, in the park, you name it. And, and that's what me and my brother and I followed them around and his friends and my cousins. 
that was everything to me. And so understanding that this is how a broadcast was put together. This is what happened. This is how it went. I was just absolutely fascinated by it. And throughout the course of that time, while I was in grad school, then I had an opportunity to do some high school games and call some girls and boys high school games. I give so much credit to my, the point I'm at in my career, there's so many spots and places, but the IHSA, I was able to be a sideline reporter on the, um, I just say football championships and it was two straight days, you know, every day, every year, two straight days, um, day after Thanksgiving and the next, uh, you had eight classes. So you had four games a day. I pretty much showed up at, you know, down in Champaign at the university of Illinois where they hosted it at six in the morning, we were getting ready. And I did the walk off the field at about 11 at night. Uh, you're freezing. You got all your prep. You're trying to figure things out. I look back and I'm like, gosh, I had no idea what was going on and what I was doing and how this all worked, but it was the amount of reps you get in a shorter time. And it was similar with basketball. Um, and one thing led to another. I was able to call a college, women's college basketball game. And um, the more you kept doing and the more I was able to keep doing and try and piece it together and, and the list can go on of uh, whether it was the MLS and the Chicago Fire, or the Chicago Shamrocks with the indoor professional lacrosse league and doing some work for WFLD and uh, filling in then to do some Bears features for them, working on some digital shows uh, that we called live news cameras. It was all the, the different reps and I think um, again, what always drew me back to it was my love of sports and my love of being challenged and growth. And I never felt like some of the things I was doing in, in terms of being in front of the camera were my straw, strong suits. I, I didn't love the attention. I didn't love some of the things that went along with it, but I loved just the, the purity of the job itself and, and being able to cover something that I loved. Um, and I had many moments thought about, is this still for me? Is this what I want to keep doing? Is there a different path, a different thing? Would I go back to coaching? Uh, but it always kept drawing me back in and I'm really thankful for it. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by the Polina Market. And if you haven't been there, what are you waiting for? It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meat since 1949, and it's only getting bigger and better. From the popular Wagyu steaks to their porterhouse and tomahawk selections, Polina leads the way, and you might just spend hours there perusing the frozen food section. Everything made fresh, including chicken pot pies, pulled pork, and a variety of meatloaves. You like brats? I love them, including their pork variety, which is so juicy and tasty on the grill. And now the Polina Market has seafood and sandwiches from the deli and wine and beer to match anything you buy. Plus, they expanded again, making the in-store experience even better, but you can still order online to pick up. Take my word for it, the Polina Market is as good as it gets and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. Mention you found them through this podcast. I think we all deal with adversity at one time or another in our lives, but you had to endure an incredibly difficult period in your life regarding your parents, which unfortunately was splashed all over the media. There's no need to get deep into this, Sarah, but tell me a story I don't know. How you navigated through that 
and how you're coping with it now. Yeah, George, the only thing I'll say on that, and it's it's not something that we really talk about publicly or, or get too deep into, um, but the thing that I think about, the thing that someone told me early on, um, and there was so many, um, so much support, especially coming from Chicago, um, friends, family, you know, those I worked with, you mentioned the, the media attention, but also those who were my friends in the Chicago media, it meant the world to me. Um, the one thing I held on to and the thing that I continue to hold on to when I think about it on a daily basis is a dear friend told me, you will always be your mother's greatest legacy. And I think about the absolute angel that she is, she was, um, and that everything I am is because of her. Um, and so that's that to me is my focus, um, that to me is my strength, that to me is how I, I find and protect my peace. And I'll continue to do that because as we know, um, and George, you know this, uh, in this business and all business and professions and all sorts of things that um, matter to people, the thing that matters most to me is the person that I am and how I treat people and how I treat others. Um, I'm so grateful to get to do what I do um, but you never know how long things will last. We always know that this is a very subjective business. Um, some people may love you and some people may not like you. Um, but the thing that matters to me at the end of the day, in the morning, all day, when you look in the mirror, um, you, what type of person are you? And if you could be good with that. And so I think um, at the core of me, that's, um, that's what I try to focus on to really continue to maintain a strength and maintain a peace. I'm going to mention two names to you while you were working here, and then you can tell me a story I don't know about both of them. Mark Burley and Jay Cutler. Other than starting with Mark Burley, just such a great appreciation uh, one of the many moments that stand out to me in my career was having the opportunity to do the on-field interview and, and you know, watch and, and be a part, take part of Mark Burley's perfect game in 2009. Alexei! Yes! 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 History! Uh, and I'll never forget, we, we always loved Mark Burley um, because of the way he, he, he really was quick. He was quick in between pitches. You know, I, I say this with a ton of respect and love and not that George were ever trying to hustle out of work or hustle out of a game. We're like, okay, you know Mark Burley's on the mound. You know he's going to keep it moving. And it was a getaway day. I believe it was a Thursday. It was an early game. They were leaving to go on a road trip. So it was getaway day. And, uh, you know, it's kind of one of those games where you show up to the ballpark and you're like, okay, let's just, let's just get this moving. Um, and as the game, and I believe Ramon Castro was catching for him and, um, it, you know, not his normal catcher. And, and long story short, as the game progressed, and it was my first year, so I say this, 2009, it was July, I believe, of 2009. Um, I had just really started, I was just recently hired um, by Comcast Sport. I had just started, I think, my, my first official full-time day with them or during that time was in January. So, and I was very fresh. 
uh, to a variety of things. So the game was progressing and, you know, for a while, okay, okay, still perfect, still perfect. And all of a sudden it's the sixth inning, it's the seventh inning. You know, we're all keep talking, we're calling back to the newsroom. Everyone's covered. Is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? Uh, the excitement building. And, uh, and I'll forget I got some calls and I'm not going to name who. And I don't know if there was texting at that time, but they're like, are you sure? Do we want to, do you want us to send someone else? Do you want us to send someone else in case? Like, are you, do you feel comfortable with I'm like, heck yeah, I feel comfortable. This is, this is amazing. You know, this, these are the moments that you do this job for. Um, and lo and behold, of course, we remember some of the, the Dwayne Wise catch and Alexi, uh, great moments, the Hawk Harrelson call at the end and um, so many things about that game, the pieces just all fit together. But I'll never forget just as it did walk onto the field and we start to do the interview, just the, the composure, the kindness that Mark Burley already always had the respect he had for all of us, the ease of which we go along things. I think oftentimes we talk about perfect games and not saying it, not bringing it up. And we asked Mark and we asked his teammates about, uh, you know, was anyone saying anything? Was anyone talking? And they're like, he was saying it. He was talking about it. He was giving us our time. Mark, this is something that a White Sox player has not done since 1922. Can you try and wrap up what it feels like to be the player? to bring this to these fans into well, the stadium? I don't know if it's really sunk in yet. I mean, I've got a little, little short flight to Detroit. I'm sure Russ and I would be pretty hectic, but uh, it'll probably sink in a little bit later. And, Mark, you've thrown no hitters before, come very close to this, but have you ever in your entire career experienced something that feels quite no. like this? No, I mean, I'll obviously win the World Series just tops anything, but on a personal goal, and then, you know, obviously guys playing defense, this, this tops them all. Well, it looks like you got a lot of guys waiting for you. And so I think there was just a really special bond between a lot of those players, of course, uh, on that White Sox team. And he got a call. He talked about us getting a call from Barack Obama afterwards. Of course, the South Sider himself, proud of what Burley did. But it, it was one of those days, I think that goes back to just this job and the beauty of this job is you never know what you're going to get. You never know what to expect. And even on the days that you think it may just be a, a typical day, uh, there are always surprises and some twists and turns, and, and that was just an extraordinary one. Did you do one of the first one-on-ones with Jay Cutler? Yeah, yeah. I, what I was did. that like? That, that was the this, this similar situation of I was on the schedule for, I was the general assignment reporter of that day. And, of course, there was a big trade. And there was so much buzz. And, George, you know this. You were a part of this there was so much buzz about that and people talking about Sid Luckman and, and mentioned the name. There have been so much comparisons with, with him and Aaron Rodgers and then the idea that they'd be playing in, against each other in the NFC North and what we'd get to see. And, um, and again, I was, it was, I was new. It was the trade to happen, I believe, in April of 2009. So I was pretty fresh on the job and trying to figure things out. And um, I'll never forget, I didn't know what to expect. And I know a lot of people have, you know, a lot of different per opinions, perspectives uh, on Jay Cutler, on, you know, personality, tenure, whatnot. And I'll never forget just, um, we get to Hallis Hall and, and we're getting set and we're getting ready. And uh, we were put into different Jim Christman, you know, uh, Bears PR was having us in different rooms and, and all set up. Um, and I was nervous. Like I, I didn't know 
you know, personality-wise and just question-wise and um, how affable he would be with the media. Um, and I'll never forget, he sat down and could not have been kinder and was asking some other questions and how are you and where are you from and um, asking about Chicago and, and just a variety of different things that you really appreciate. And, you know, after we finish and the, we all have the one-on-ones and I think we're all, you know, huddled around in the media room as well, getting ready for our live shots and doing some things. I'll just, um, that goes back to, I think, just the camaraderie and you know, the colleagues and others that work for different networks or radio stations, but all of us just, I think about the people um, in the media in Chicago and how much you appreciate them and you go through different things with them and the experiences that you have where you are linked and, um, you know, the anticipation of when big things happen, when big trades happen, uh, and then having an opportunity to look back and be like, oh, do you remember how we felt then? And remember how, you know, how is it working out now? Or how are we feeling now? But that was one that I, I felt like was a um, very important moment just in, in the context of, of where I was at professionally and in my career and just things that I was looking forward to, to continue to work on and try and improve um, in different aspects of, of your roles. And I really, I was really grateful for that one. So here you are, you're, you're making a name for yourself as a member of the Chicago media, and then you leave. And so <laughs> the answer could be, well, someone made me an offer I couldn't refuse, but I imagine it goes deeper than that. So Sarah, tell me a story I don't know. What prompted you to head east and to go to the Big Apple? I so appreciate, given your question just about me being in television and being on camera, there was so much that I, my path, my journey, um, my quote unquote, oh, what's your ideal of a, a next dream job? I, that was a, a blank slate for me. That was an open canvas. And I was like, gosh, I every day, uh, the uniqueness of different roles. Or I'm just loving every second of this. I don't know where it's going to lead and what directions I'm going, but I want to tackle anything that is a, a, in front of me um, in a way that I can continue to improve and try and be the best version of myself for whatever network or outlet that I'm working for. And so that whole journey up until that point had me, as I previously mentioned, obviously, covering the NBA, covering college basketball, high school basketball, high school football, college football, uh, the NFL, hockey, you know, even when I started covering the Blackhawks um, and how many great moments I, I was able to experience through that. I, I knew nothing about hockey going in. You know, there was so much I needed to learn and to study. Uh, lacrosse, that I was able to cover soccer. The list goes on um, on a variety of different levels. But at my core, at my heart of hearts, you know, basketball is, is my love. And so this presented me with an opportunity um, to just entrench myself in the NBA and in basketball and come to New York and in the New York media market and see if I had the chops to, to be able to be, you know, successful and competent here. The Nets were moving to Brooklyn. It aligned with the New Jersey Nets becoming the Brooklyn Nets. And that to me was really interesting and enticing. Um, and when I say entrenched myself in the NBA, you know, unlike in every network, it had been set up differently, um, but I would be traveling with the team. You know, we'd be on their charters and we'd cover all the road games and um, all sorts of ways in which you are really a part of um, what each of the broadcasts is. And at the time, that, that wasn't the setup with the reporters um, at Comcast Sports in Chicago. So uh, for all of those reasons, um, 
that really seemed like a great challenge. And again, it goes back to the things, the things that really get at me and, and that's a challenge and trying new things. And so I think, you know, those were the main stuff for as much as it made me, I think about Chicago all the time. I miss it. I miss the media. I miss the fans. I miss the teams. I still watch and, and cover them. And um, who knows what happens down the line in the future, but that it felt like the right moment and the right time of it coming together for an opportunity that I was really curious um, to see what it would pan out to be. And thus far, uh, is it's been an extraordinary one. I end all of these interviews, Sarah, with this final question. If not for sports broadcasting, let me take it one step further. If not for sports, what would you have been? Whew. I think I would be a very different person. The things that I learned um, in terms of teamwork, in terms of competition, in terms of how you handle with the same grace winning and losing, um, failures and how you look at failures, how you look at a resiliency and life facing challenges as, as we all face challenges in life. Um, the things that you begin to learn about yourself and how to do that in the sports arena and in a playing field um, and with others. I think there there's so many characteristics that to me are so ingrained in how I look at things, my mentality, my attitude, who I am, that were, were born of sports and born of being an athlete. And so I don't know, George, and I'm glad that I, I don't have to actually know the answer to that question. Thank you, Sarah Kustak, for telling me a story I don't know. My thanks to NBCSN and to NBC Sports Chicago for those highlights. Thanks, as always, to T.J. Reeves for putting this podcast on the map, Will Hatzel for his deft editing, T.T. Shinkin for her artistic touch, and Ken Schreiner for always being there. And, of course, to our presenting sponsors, the Polina Market. Find them at polinamarket.com and the Vienna Beef Company in business since 1893. You can find them at viennabeef.com. Join me next time for another edition of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.